Welcome to the New School at Commonweal, a collaborative learning project exploring ecology, culture, and consciousness. I'm your host, Michael Lerner. Join us now for an interview with Ursula Goodenough, professor of biology at Washington University and one of America's leading cell biologists and the author of the best-selling book, The Sacred Depths of Nature. Ursula Goodenough, welcome to the New School. I'm delighted to be here. You are a scientist, a cell biologist, uh, renowned for your work in cell biology at Washington University in St. Louis, the author of a classic book on genetics called Genetics, and the past president of the American Society for Cell Biology. But you also have another life as an exponent of religious naturalism. What is religious naturalism? <laughs> uh, you want the elevator version or a longer conversation? Well, let's start with the elevator version and we okay. can branch out from there. All right. Well, I'm calling naturalism what we understand about nature. So then those understandings of what we understand about nature call forth, including the understandings that come to us from scientific probing, uh, that those understandings then call for our religious responses. And you have undertaken to explore this in a best-selling book called The Sacred Depths of Nature, which uh, I have read with enormous interest and enthusiasm. Cool. Twelve chapters on the origins of the earth, the origins of life, how life works, how an organism works, how evolution works, on biodiversity, awareness, emotions and meaning, sex, sexuality, multicellularity and death, and speciation, followed by uh, a chapter on emergent religious principles. So I take that what you have tried to do is look at the whole trajectory of evolution and explore both whether we can feel a deep sense of sacred reverence about the cosmology uh, of that trajectory, and also whether there are emergent ethical principles that can guide us as a species. Beautiful. That was lovely. <laughs> um, yes, in the book, I say very explicitly that the book will not explore the emergent moral and ethical principles, that I think this needs to be a global conversation, and that what I'm interested in doing is the first of the two moves you just described, of connecting us with this as a global story, uh, and, you know, spiritually. And I use that term in terms of, you know, just getting our own collective and communal heads thinking along these lines. And then, you know, what are their implications? You're the past president and a participant in an organization called the Institute for Religion in an Age of Science. And as I understand, part of the central goal of your work is to take the universally accepted language of science of our time and use that as a framework for a, uh, a universe story and a global ethic that might guide us through the enormous crisis of life that we're facing. Yes, beautifully put again. I think that the Speaking now just in terms of um, the organization you just meant, uh, described, IRAS, uh, we call it I-R-A-S, IRAS.org, um, that that is very, it's a very old society. It's now in its 50-somethings year, and uh, it um, explores the intersections between the sort of the yoking of science and religion has been its idea. So those of us who are religious naturalists find it very helpful to talk to persons from the traditions and learn from the traditions what's being sought and how our you know, new understandings of nature and existence, how they're fitting in with the tradition. Although they might not describe themselves as religious naturalists, in fact, I doubt that they that's would. That's right, uh, but, and we're not asking them to. And right. you know, so that's why I wanted to make that clarification, is that Iris is not a religious naturalist organization. It's an organization I that I serve and I'm very committed to and I've, you know, had the honor to chair a number of their conferences. So it includes both religious naturalists and those oh, yeah. from the traditions. Oh, or, you know, our, 
president a couple of cycles ago was a Jesuit monk, and you know, so on. Uh, so it's it's quite it's quite diverse. So your dialogue must include figures like uh, Tom Berry and Brian Swim. Absolutely. Yes. So so Brian and Mary Evelyn Tucker, and John Grimm, they sort of are this trio, as you know. Um, they've spoken at several of the Iris Star conferences, and Brian and Mary Evelyn and I co-chaired one hmm, three or four years ago that we called Eco-Morality, and we were taking on this third piece of what would uh, an eco-moral system look like that was grounded in these scientific understandings. As you witness and participate in both the religious naturalism movement in its all, all its varieties, but also the engagement with a, a science-based spirituality of, of the uh, more explicitly faith-oriented people. Mm-hmm. How do you see that trajectory moving? Is it a growing movement? Uh, yeah. Well, it's a great question. I mean, the so I, I do, I go to any church that invites me, and I've been to, you know, not, of course, all denominations, but, I mean, this past year I spoke at five or six events for various, Episcopal denominations in St. Louis. And I think people are very interested in making these connections. And, you know, they appreciate, although, you know, I'm, I'm not a Christian and I'm not a theist, but they appreciate my respect for where they're coming from there. And, and you know, they're, they realize that this work has to be done and they might as well get started. You're not a theist, but you have experienced, as you describe, uh, the sense of, of imminence, of, uh, both of imminence and of mystery. You distinguish sure. between the two. <laughs> well, we can go there. Yes, certainly I've had, you know, r- remarkable experiences, and I think that there's then the whole matter of whether how one interprets those experiences, whether one interprets them as coming from without or whether one interprets them as having something to do with this extraordinary gift of being human that we have and the experiences that we generate. So, you know, that's, you know, that Lord knows there's libraries filled with exploring that question. You spent a week with the Dalai Lama in yeah. Dharamsala, and you gave him a, a PowerPoint presentation on evolution. Mm-hmm. What was that like? <laughs> well, I mean, we have to at least have, have an elevator up to this top of a tall building here. Uh, it was great. I mean, he's amazing. You know, he's just an, a remarkable presence, and he listened carefully, and, uh, you know, we had translators and stuff, but I felt totally connected with him, as does everybody. I mean, you know, he's just a remarkable person, and he was very attentive. What particularly intrigued him in your in your presentation? Well, his, his people had told me that he understood sort of the basics of, of protein chemistry, and so I had a few introductory PowerPoint slides that were supposed to sort of refresh him on how an enzyme works or something, and we spent about 20 minutes on that because he didn't know. Uh-huh. It was so cool, <laughs> and, and he got it, and, and my slides worked, and, and he was very, very pleased to understand, and you know, it's a basic concept in, in biology. Of course, the Dalai Lama has a long history of engagement with neuroscientists in the United States. And That's has, right. Well, has it's a the same series that I was at. So usually it's, it's, he either has neuroscientists there or he has um, uh, particle physicists. So those are sort of the two ends of the spectrum where mm-hmm. Buddhism you know, fits in the best. And he's on record as saying that if religion and science differ and the science is sound, then religion must give way to science. You bet. And he, you know, so as I understand it, you know, a lot of the uh, cosmological, you know, star-based stuff that was in Buddhism, you know, doesn't have anything to do with what scientists understand now about the universe, and the Dalai Lama has said, you know, that stuff ain't right. Uh Uh-huh. So I thought that was pretty cool. Yeah. But... You know, so that's what I mean at the two ends of the spectrum, is that one end of the spectrum, i.e., how does mind work, and at the other end of the spectrum, what's really the nature of existence. Science drops off at either end, and Buddhism is working at those 
interfaces. And as a non-theistic religion, it, it would seem to me that you might have less difficulty with uh, uh, the Buddhist perception of reality than with the uh, personal uh, God that you describe in your book uh, as something that you haven't been able to, to really accept. That's right. Only if you recall my covenant with mystery, um, my own, where I'm coming from, is that um, once that covenant was made, it's not like that mystery part is a part where, that I'm really interested in going to all the time and exploring. Mm-hmm. Whereas for, you know, a contemplative, going there and exploring that is, is a major factor of what she or he does. Mm-hmm. And so I think that's just sort of a matter of, you know, personality. And, and I just, I'd love to do that, but I really love being a scientist and I can't do both. <laughs> <laughs> In your book, uh, each of the chapters is, is wonderful, essentially a, a reflection, uh, a description, a brief description of the science and then your own reflections on it. You, you quote William James in one of your interviews, I think, as saying that uh, religion is essentially our effort to come to terms with or relate to, to what is, something along those lines. Do you yeah. remember the quote? I can't remember. I yeah. could go get it, but yeah, yeah that, that's something along those lines. Yeah. And uh, so we could go through all of them, but uh, I thought I might start with your chapter on awareness, because sure. uh, that's a, a particularly... That's what we were just doing anyway. Right, deep area. So yeah. how, how does awareness work in your perspective, scientifically? Well, I think awareness is an emergent property, uh, that goes along with being a life form. I mean, I think that life forms, from the very beginning when they came in, one of their properties was to have this property called awareness that somehow they could figure out what was going on outside of themselves. And so where what, the, what where if the human food beings... is, where the light is, where the energy source is. I mean, that's right. that's the name of the game if you're a critter. You've got to bring something in. Uh, so you have to find it, so you have to be aware. So, And all modern organisms, be they single-celled or, you know, redwoods or humans, you know, they're all aware of all sorts of things. And, and the proteins that are involved in awareness have just been recycled. You know, bugs use the same ones that we do. They see light with the same pigment and stuff. Mm-hmm. So, you know, it's just that awareness, you know, has to do with detecting a signal and stuff like that. And then in animals, we got this brain-based awareness that is doing something else. It's, you know, using a different, playing a different game at some level. Mm-hmm. And then you get to, you know, what we think is special, which is our own ability to be aware of you know, very large ideas and so on. And But it's all, as near as we can tell, looking inside, you know, it's all made of the same stuff. And the Buddhists will say, well, yeah, it's made of the same stuff, but something else is coming in. And, you know, in the end, we can't argue that. So it's just a... So you say that as a non-theist, I can only think about these experiences as wondrous mental phenomena but in the end, it doesn't matter. All of us are transformed by their power. So it's, it's a hey, sense... Good quote. <laughs> we, we can't figure this one out, but one yeah. way or the other, it's powerful, whether it's coming from inside or outside. Right, and I don't see any point in getting your panties in a wedge about that one. I think it's great. You know, some people prefer one explanation than some the other. And it's very personal. I mean, some people have had very strong experiences that they cannot figure out how to interpret as being just having happened inside their heads. And, you know, I have, you know, maybe I'm bereft. I haven't had an experience that that I couldn't, you know, couldn't put in that category. Right. <laughs> but that's who I am. Now, you, you devote two chapters, two wonderful chapters, to sex and sexuality, as uh, followed by a chapter on death. And the whole relationship, which you describe so beautifully, of... Uh, what sex and sexuality have brought to us and the price being death. Could you talk a little about that? Sure. Um, So most critters on the planet, the bacteria and everybody, they just get bigger and then they divide in two and then those two divide to four and four to eight. And so 
as you know, any one of those cells can die, but there's no death programmed into that way of, of reproducing. But the kind of organisms we are, the sexual eukaryotes, we have this thing where our genes pass through the germline, and so we have eggs and sperm, and then the eggs and sperm unite to make this other critter, the diploid critter, the soma, the um, plant, whatever, um, which in turn produces the gametes for the next generation. And so the soma then is destined to die. It's, it's not supposed to live. What's supposed to live is gametes. And what's terrific about that is the soma can then differentiate into all these incredible creatures with brains and everything else because the gametes are real simple and keep going. And so our brains have to do with that evolutionary trip that was taken by multicellular animals to make brains. And so now we have these brains, but these are brains that are now understand that they're going to die, that they're mortal. And so... You write, so our brains and hence our minds are destined to die with the rest of the soma, and it is here that we arrive at one of the central ironies of human existence, which is that our sentient brains are uniquely capable of experiencing deep regret and sorrow and fear at the prospect of our own death. Yet it was the invention of death, the invention of the germ-soma dichotomy that made possible the existence of our brains. Yeah, that was what I was trying to say. <laughs> <laughs> You're a good learner. Um, okay, so yeah, but I think that's a really powerful idea. So there, one could say that that in a sense that scientifically that the tragic is built right into the heart of the diploid uh, family of life and the human being in particular? Well, the tragic is a large word. Um, I mean, if the tragic is death, then yes, death is built in, you know, probably a billion and a half years ago into how our kind of life works. It's part of the deal. But you yourself... But there's no, you know, so... Yeah. But we're the only ones who know about it, and there are all these other crews on the planet charging around and not being worried right. about the fact that they're going to die, you know. And um, one day they do. So we have this sort of extra burden. You yourself in the book talk about how when somebody we care about dies, it is oh, yeah. tragic. It oh, is yeah. Tragic. Oh, yeah. my God. So. <laughs> Unspeakable. No, no, no. So that's what I said when it says, right. what do you mean by tragic? Right. So okay. for some, you know, the existentialist, the tragedy is, you know, that right. we are mortal or whatever. And But, oh, sure, that, that you know, we lose loved ones is horrible. Yeah. But again, you know, that's pretty unique to us. I mean, I had some towhees living uh, near my house, these two birds, and they were always together, they were always nesting, and then one day the female flew into my window and broke her neck mm. and the male sort of went over to her and looked at her a little bit with his beady eye and then he just sort of charged off and started doing his thing mm-hmm. and I, I had tears running down my cheeks right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. so, so you know I think that this whole thing of caring as opposed to nurturing this emergent property that we do you know, of caring is is, is um And caring connects with the chapter that you've written on sexuality as opposed mm. to sex. And um, you talk about the, the different uh, strategies that particularly the primates, the bonobos and the chimpanzees and uh, the, the humans have uh, for sexual behavior. Mm-hmm. Um, one of the things that of course, the bonobos make love all the time, as you say, male mm-hmm. with male, male with female. I think female. most people pronounce it bonobo. Oh, thank you. Yeah, that's I'm quite all right. Bonobo. It took uh, me a while. Shows me how, how hey, little I know. Well, no, you know, you know a lot. So you know that they have sex right. all the time. Right. That's what most people know. And the chimps, by contrast, uh, only have uh, sex when the female is in, in heat. Right. Uh, neither group is monogamous. Um, and 
Then you, you say the range of human sexual behavior includes all of the above. In addition, humans profess allegiance to the concept, if not always the practice of committed marriage. Uh, this commitment feeds into the second facet of sexuality, the need for other. And I wanted to ask you, because you're talking about the exploration uh, of a emergent planetary ethic. Mm-hmm. And in your uh, discussion of the emergent planetary ethic, Uh, the emergent religious principles, there are what I would call safe principles, uh, like uh, uh, taking on ultimacy, you know, where, why is there anything, uh, where did the laws of physics come from, the God questions in a sense. Mm -hmm. And then there's gratitude, which is a a beautiful description, uh, and the, the credo of continuation, um, uh, sort of that, that, that life should continue, that, that we have an ethical obligation. But uh, what do we do with the fundamentally conflicted nature of human sexuality in terms of the primate platform that we were given and then uh, our efforts to cause as little suffering as we can? Um, and that's not something... Um, that you address among these emergent principles. Okay, I need to understand the conflict you're describing. So we have, on the one hand, our sexuality. Right. And then that is contrasted with our, what's the second piece? In other words, we have our sexuality, and, and as you write, humans profess allegiance to the concept, if not always the practice of oh, committed okay. marriage. Yeah. So, and then in another place, you, you talk about um, how, uh, in reality, uh, intimate relationships that, that at first, at the outset, our emotional responses to our parents and our mates are thoroughly wondrous, thoroughly compelling, and deeply mm-hmm. joyous. Alas, intimate relationship is inherently fraught with conflict. Mm-hmm. We struggle to accommodate our love for our mates and our need for their reliability and trust with the experience of what we elect to call temptation and lust, and so on. So I guess what I'm asking about is, how do you in particular, and religious naturalism more broadly, if, if others have uh, struggled with these questions, deal not with the, the large picture questions of reverence for life and gratitude and the like, but rather with the moral codes that we live by, does religious naturalism, or do you in particular, have any sense of the ways in which uh, this reverence for nature and for the scientific understanding of nature leads us to personal codes of ethics that guide us in these fraught and difficult relationships? Wow, okay. Well, I see that the fact that we showed up with, you know, clearly, complicatedly wired sexual hardware, okay? Mm -hmm. Whatever. I mean, we've got this stuff, and, you know, we work on educating it, and we work on, and there's lots of stuff that's going on there, but it is something we're, you know, we're stuck with, like the fact that our spots weren't designed to be upright. Mm-hmm. And, you know, we try to figure out how to get that to work as best it can. And, you know, lots of things are involved, including raising kids and how you think about it in that context. I think that that's a separate question from what I understood, the second part, which is, you know, what do we do about these understandings of nature in terms of, you know, larger larger global Commitments, right? You know, outside you're, you're, of our own, you know, relationships or however, however they're going. All right, right. Um, so, but I think that an understanding of who we are as biological beings is very helpful on both of those fronts. That I, for one, think of a lot of my health issues and my emotional issues and so on in terms of who I am as an organism. And I think about what we should be doing to take care of this place as an organism. Right, exactly. So there's, uh, at the planetary level, 
there are these emergent religious principles that you believe are needed to frame a global ethos uh, that you describe in the book, as I say, gratitude, reverence, and so on. What I'm trying to get at now is whether you believe that religious naturalism only contributes to these large planetary uh, guidelines for oh, living no. together. No, no, exactly. So that was what I was saying before, that I think that, I mean, religious naturalism is, you know, the, the piece of it is, is how much you bring to your experience as a human being, your understandings of the cosmos and the planet and the workings of your own body to your consciousness. Right. And some people don't have that in their consciousness at all. In Lots many of people on the planet. And, you know, so because of my line of work, um, I have it, you know, totally in my mind. I, it's not, it doesn't take away any of the fun. I'm still a very happy person. Mm-hmm. But, uh, you know, it's very helpful to drop back if I'm feeling sad and, and realize, you know, try to think about it in terms of what's happening in my body. That's really cool. There's a beautiful poem by Mary Oliver that you quote, mm. uh, a poem that many of us know. Yeah. Uh, uh, I'm trying to find it here, but it's the one that's... It's at uh, the end of the diversity of life, I think. It's, what, what, it's either f- chapter five or six, one of the evolution ones, in, the, in a reflection. Right. But in any case, she, she says, you don't have to be good. You don't have to walk on your knees forever. You only need to let the animal within you love what it loves. And um, true enough, at that level of allowing us to uh, allow the the animal being within us to follow uh, its impulses, at the same time, all the qualities, the emergent qualities that you describe of, of caring and of trying to create ways to live together have led to principles that in effect restrain uh, that those animal instincts. Mm-hmm. And um, there it seems to me, just to sharpen the point, that it is difficult for religious naturalism to provide guidelines to solutions to those kinds of ethical questions as opposed to the global religious ethos. I absolutely agree. Uh, you know, the, the, the you know, it's, there's all this stuff stuff about, you know, um, the ought-is issue. Right. Okay. And, you know, I'm, I'm fully there, and scientists are fully there. You know, we're talking about what is and what we ought to do with the fact that we have some control over what is is not what science tells us, because it's, it's, it's humans figuring something out, and hopefully they'll use the scientific understandings wherever they can in making their decisions. We'll be right back after a short break. I'm talking with Ursula Goodenough, professor of biology at Washington University, um, and we are in the midst of a, a wonderful conversation about uh, what science can and cannot say about uh, human behavior and ethics. Yes, scientists, as you describe, talk about what is. Mm-hmm. At the same time, at the global level, you, your sense that there is an emergence, reverence, and so on, suggests that a, a science-based religious naturalism can take us beyond that. And you call for a, a, a dialogue about that. You say you can't address the specifics, but that out of dialogue we can work toward a better... And it's going to be a, you know, a really complicated dialogue. I mean, you know, we've tried some of this stuff in terms of Earth Charter and stuff like that. And, you know, it's... All of those, you know... Efforts like Earth Charter, I think, are fantastic, you know, but it's not like it's on the evening news. So we just, it's just the idea of religious, being a religious naturalist is just to kind of be in a space where you, you know, 
you get it and you're receptive to and hopefully want to contribute to a future where we think about what the hell we're doing. The Wikipedia article on religious naturalism describes a whole set of different flavors of yes. religious naturalism. Could you describe what the main flavors of religious naturalism are? Well, that was a very... I'm, I'm pleased that you went to that because a lot of effort went into it, but I wasn't actually involved in writing that, so I think I was quoted in a few places. But that was, you know, people who were very interested in the history of the idea and everything, and I think it's a great piece. But the core distinction that, you know, did generate a conversation, all of this, of course, is going on on email, um, had to do with theistic versus not theistic religious naturalist. And um, part of the problem is semantic, because naturalism, 19th century philosophers had naturalism having being the same thing as atheism, but if you were a naturalist, you were an atheist. And, you know, I just thought naturalism was a great word. You know, it also means being a nudist. So, mm-hmm. you know, I said, okay, let's call naturalism our understandings of the natural world and religious our response to it. And then, you know, the response to it includes your you know, your sort of theological responses. And your responses to it might be theological. They might be theistic. So there are religious naturalists naturalists who do not use God language. There are religious naturalists who do use God language but regard it as metaphorical. And then there are religious naturalists who uh, use God language uh, but leave open the question of whether that usage is metaphorical or refers to an ultimacy that rests within nature. Right. Yeah. That's a nice triad yeah. of, of Yeah, exactly. And the, the, the term that we started bonging around, you know, and this conversation is not with millions of people, but my email conversation, so we have this idea of what we call big tent religious naturalism. So a big tent, you know, for me is, you know, country fair. And there's this big tent, and inside there are all these booths with different crafts, and, you know, the kind of thing, I mean. And so... Big tent religious naturalism, the, the, you don't have to, you know, check out your credentials at the door. You go in and you see what kind of religious naturalism ideas are in there. Right. And you line up at different booths. Or you go and booth, you're a booth hopper. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, that's the thing. It's just, so we have this, actually, this thing out now. We've got about... I don't know, 150 people or something like that who sign on to this list that says, yeah, what you say up above describes me, I'm a religious naturalist, okay? So this is just a private thing, but um, it, it, it resonates with a lot of people. There are a lot of cool people on the list. One of the people you quote in your book and talk about in interviews is the, the great naturalist E.O. Wilson. Right. And of course, he has been deeply engaged with these questions of the relationship of religion and science. Right. What do you make of his perspective on religion and science? Ed, you know, I'll just talk about, no, I mean, I, he was my teacher when I was a graduate student, so I've known him forever. And so he's gone in different directions at different times. But let me just say that what he's doing now, which I think is what's most relevant, because it's what he's doing now, is he's really trying to reach out to the evangelicals, because he's been in that community and knows it, and help them see that these understandings are, you know, uh, that that science is revelation. Would he describe himself as a religious naturalist? He has pretty much taken on the secular humanist thing, you know, and it's not that far, only... For me, first of all, I hate the term humanism just because it sounds like, you know, humans are the only deal. Right. So it just doesn't, it's just a non-starter for me. Um, but the other thing is that humanism is sort of the 20th century version of naturalism in the 19th century. It's, it's you know, it states that it's atheistic. Right. And, and um, you know, it's, uh, there's nothing wrong with being atheistic. I have no problem with that. It's just that that's not who I am. He and Steve Kellert wrote a book called The Biophilia Hypothesis. Uh, right. Steve Kellert is a wonderful professor 
of environmental studies at Yale University. And, uh, and it seems to me that in the biophilia hypothesis, the, the, the hypothesis that humans have an innate love of, of nature, uh, that you find some of the reverence that uh, religious naturalism uh, describes as central to its understanding. You bet. But he also wrote an essay, which I've always found fascinating, called Is Mankind Suicidal? I don't know if you know the essay. No, I don't. Well, it was an essay in which he asked whether the primate platform on which uh, human beings uh, came to be the dominant species, given the sort of orientation of primates toward small groups and family clusters and you know, small you know, tribal or, uh, or troop groups, uh, didn't, uh, didn't uh, lead us to care about the earth as a whole. And he ends it with a wonderful section on how the earth might have been better off if the dominant species had turned out to be a, a large species of ants, which, of course, <laughs> one of his, his favorite uh, species. But I wonder whether you've ever thought about, as a scientist, as, uh, as somebody who has thought about these questions, whether uh, E.O. Wilson's question of whether mankind is essentially suicidal because we are built on a primate species isn't a valid concern. Well, oh, <laughs> there are just too many of us. I mean, you know, we're doing fine at a lower population density. It's a, perfect, it's a perfectly, you know, it's an evolutionary line that's doing just right. Um, it, it was doing fine. You know, there are more insects, but I mean, the, the insect model is, is, I don't know whether you want me to go into this, but it's, it's a, a very misleading one, and, and I think Ed has figured this out. I mean, for an insect, the organism is, is the hive or the colony. The, the gonads, going back to, you know, how the next generation gets presented, is in the queen. Mm-hmm. And all of the workers are sterile. Mm-hmm. And so they're, they are just like liver cells are to us. I see. And so, yeah, they're cooperating, just like liver cells cooperate. If they don't cooperate, we get cancer. But it's... It was very confusing because the things that are going around are organisms, they're not cells. <laughs> uh-huh. But it's just a meta unit. It's a great idea and you know, that happened in that particular lineage. Mm-hmm. But it's it's a crummy model. I mean, you know, I don't wanna be a I, well anyway, I'm not. I'm not uh, You're not you know, an not insect a, you're not a super insect. I'm lover. not a you know, <laughs> here it is and they didn't invent invent brains that have languages and stuff. We are having a conversation, right? <laughs> so it's our problem to solve. <laughs> one of the uh, one of the concepts that you address in some of your conversations is uh, the Gaia hypothesis that mm-hmm. uh, the Earth is a sort of a superordinate organism that tends to correct itself. And you've thought about that from a scientific perspective. What what do you make of the Gaia hypothesis? Well, I I don't. You may, I, I don't mention the Gaia hypothesis in the book to my... No, I but in no. some of your interviews. Well, right. And, but I'm usually responding to, you know, how do I think about it? And, and I actually find the Gaia hypothesis misleading. So it, for me, I think the difference between life and non-life is very basic and that the, there's something about the Gaia idea that is trying to make the non-life important by being part of a living organism. You know, I just respect stones. (laughs) And there's stones and then there's life, and life is figuring out how to live with stones and gases and stuff like that. And Gaia just, it it, it sort of gets in my way. I, I I like my earth more, more complicated. So the, does that make sense? Yes, I mean, it's it does all make still sense. very inter- interdependent. It's just for me the wrong metaphor. So the the sense, the specific sense of the Gaia hypothesis that there is a potentially self-correcting uh, process going on in the whole complex well, of natural uh, systems on Earth does not make sense to you. Is that no, 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 no. 
self-correction for sure. Uh-huh. Oh, yeah. No, I mean, the whole thing is is self-correcting all the time, you know. So, I mean, it, you know, it goes this way and then it goes that way. It's it's all, everything in the end is thermodynamics, right? And, um, but, you know, that doesn't mean it's necessarily going to go in the right direction or a direction that means that our particular way of doing things is going to continue. Mm-hmm. So, you know, we have to pay attention to that. <laughs> but, uh, you know, a meteor comes in, yeah, it'll self-correct. Um, it'll just be real different at the end. What do you find yourself thinking about in this vein of your work right now? Uh, are you working on another book? Are you thinking about sort of next steps in this, or is this a, a completed dimension of your work? Yeah, well, I, I'm, in a, I'm in a phase, actually, where I've gotten real interested in the science that's going on in my lab. And mm-hmm. so... I've kind of, you know, I still do gigs, and, and I'm organizing a conference this summer on Star Island on emergence that I hope you'll come to again, iris.org. Um, and, um, you know, so I still do it, but, but my, I, I don't, I don't have, I have a book in me. I'd love to write a book with Terry Deacon, and we talk about it, but we never get around to it. <laughs> and what's happening in your lab? Pardon? What's happening in your lab that so interests you? Oh, well, we're just figuring out a lot of stuff that might be relevant to what the first, not the first organisms on the planet, but the first eukaryotic organisms on the planet were like and how they did their sexual cycles and the kinds of things I've been working on all my life. But we're, as sometimes happens in science, you know, sometimes doors open real fast and you move through a lot of questions. So that's what's happening. Have you followed the uh, research literature on the impact of endocrine-disrupting chemicals on organisms? I think uh, Fred von Saal may be uh, near you uh, uh, in, uh, in St. Louis. But uh, in any case, have you followed that research literature and has it in- interested you at all? I haven't because what I've learned, um, I've just gotten... <laughs> Experienced because you know, as each potential toxin has shown up, dioxin or you know, radon or whatever, friends ask me to try to figure out how to think about it, and it's really hard. I don't have the expertise, mm-hmm. I don't know how to evaluate, I can't remember, you know, I don't respond to what statistical analysis was done or whatever. Mm-hmm. So, I've decided I just don't read that stuff. Mm-hmm. What I instead think is that all things being equal, we should put as you know, as few bioactive products out in the environment as we can possibly do. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's a no-brainer. Ursula, one of the central issues in your book, The Sacred Depths of Nature, is uh, the emergent qualities of life as it uh, moves up the evolutionary chain. And... Um, my understanding is that your view is that this is mysterious and extraordinary, but that it's not going somewhere in particular. Is mm-hmm. that correct? Yeah, and I wouldn't say it's mysterious either. We kind of know what's going on, but it certainly is extraordinary. Okay? <laughs> right. All right. But, yeah, I mean, well, of course it is going somewhere. It's going somewhere in the sense that it has, and always has been creating critters that can keep on going, going, given particular environmental circumstances. So, you know, if you think that that constitutes purpose, then there's purpose. If you think that there should be some purpose that's larger than that, then we can keep talking. I'm simply curious about it because yeah. people like Teilhard de Chardin, for example, yeah. have have argued that there was core spiritual purpose in emergence itself. Isn't that true? Yeah, I don't remember him using emergence language, but certainly just that life continues to get complicated. Um, Yeah, I mean, it keeps getting complicated. It also, in a lot of situations, keeps getting simpler. and, And, you know, so I think that the this issue of whether, you know, it's going somewhere is very much the same kind of uh, 
you know, question is that some people see it as being, you know, in having something to do with God, and other people don't. Right. Right? And so they're not the same questions, it's not the same phrasing, but it has the same outcome. But some people see it that way, and other people don't. Or, in my case, I guess it's more important that I don't care. I mean, the fact of existence as I experience it every day, and what's going on out there, and what's happened so completely knocks my socks off. (laughs) (laughs) Whether it has some higher purpose, Uh I mean, come on. (laughs) (laughs) So I just don't find it's a very Uh question, you know, but for some of people, it's it's huge. So in in the last part of this conversation, I'd just like to go back to your your personal history that brought you to these uh, questions of... Uh, religion and science. Um, at the beginning of your book, you say, no question about it, I'm writing this book because of my father. Tell us about your dad. Well, he was 50 years old when I was born, so it was kind of an interesting experience in that respect. He um, was born and raised in a strict Methodist family in Brooklyn, and went to seminary and was ordained and then decided he wanted to be a scholar and so got a Ph.D. and was a professor of the history of religion at Yale. And so I grew up in that context in New Haven. And he was just very interested in why people were religious. He was very interested in psychology, taught a course on the college, psychology of religion in the 50s. That kind of thing. But he did not believe in God, is that right? No, I mean he called himself an agnostic. Uh-huh. You know, he he said that we don't really have any information on mm-hmm. him. Yeah, I would use the agnostic term myself, except it sounds so stuffy. Mm-hmm. And so, in a very real sense, you are taking your your father's passion for the history of religion and uh, projecting it onto the whole march of evolution on Earth uh, mm-hmm. in a That's very. Very yeah, I never thought of it that way. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I mean, I think he was interested in the origins of Christianity, so I guess what I share with him a lot is interest in origins. So mm-hmm. I'm very interested in, you know, how, why people are religious and um, what, whether this story, this new story, you know, Brian Swim calls it the universe story, uh, Loyal Rue calls it everybody's story, which I love. Um what what religious potential this story has. It's 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 kind of an exploration. And because it's an exploration, you know, there's never gonna be a catechism or a creed. I mean the creed is what's out there. And even that, you know, has the rule, hey, we can figure out that this may be working differently than current understanding. And you yourself, uh are part of the Trinity Presbyterian Church, is that right? Well, I, I sang in the choir for 12 years, mm-hmm. and I figured it all out, so I really, you know, I really think I understand that tradition pretty well, at least in that context. Um, but, you know, it never, it didn't, I certainly, uh, when I went to join, I told the minister that I didn't believe in God, and he said, oh, that's okay, you can be a pilgrim. <laughs> And he came up with it pretty fast, like maybe a few other people have <laughs> said right. the same thing. <laughs> Do you still go to church? Uh, no. Uh-huh. Do you meditate? Yeah, yeah, about mm-hmm. an hour a day. I don't really sit, but I just, you know, have a glass of wine and mm-hmm. get myself quiet and look in the mm-hmm. fire. Yeah. Go out to the beach. So, this whole sense you have that you share with Brian Swim, that you share with Thomas Berry, uh, that you share with Mary Evelyn Tucker and others, that the universe story could be the framework for a, a, a global understanding of ourselves and even an emergent global ethic. How likely do you think it is that <laughs> we'll pull that off? Yeah. yeah. I don't know. I mean... You know, yeah. How how likely is a lot of stuff that happens in our history? Right. Uh, you know, and how predictable. I mean, so 
I operate on the assumption that, you know, something like this couldn't happen for 100 years, and I operate also on the suspicion that if something like this doesn't kick in in 25 years, then uh, it's not clear to me what's going to kick in. (laughs) Um, And so, but the 100 years is what I figure, and so that kind of puts the pressure off because I'll be dead by then. And so... I just kind of talk about it mm-hmm. and, uh, you know, help people think about it. And, and, I mean, lots of times ideas have, like, you know, look at the women's movement. It just kind of popped through. It just took off. Yeah, without any leadership or anything. Just kinda, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah. And so, obviously, education is huge because as long as people don't know this story, and it's not an easy one to figure out. Um, then it doesn't have much of a chance. You gave a plenary talk for the American Academy for the Advancement of Science in which you proposed that the the history of uh, the evolution of life on Earth should be should be taught in our schools. Yeah, well, the, I, I was saying the whole story, you know, mm-hmm. Big Bang onward. Right, so, okay. Yeah, yeah, planet the whole bit. Has yeah, there been much yeah. resonance to that suggestion? Oh, my God. I mean, the response to that was absolutely huge. I got deluged with emails, and everybody wanted to, you know, join with me on it and everything, and, and I really got intrigued for a while. But, um, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm handicapped in all of this because I really love doing science. Right. <laughs> and it's really, you know, it really, whatever... Whenever that calls, I kind of go. So, but I hope somebody picks this up. I mean, that's my goal. Is I mean, I teach a course along those lines at WashU, and a lot of people take it. And um, I teach it with a geologist and a physicist, and we tell the story for a semester. It's really good. So I'd hope something like that will happen, but I just haven't been able to pull it off myself. Well, Ursula, good enough. Thank you so much for your work and for this conversation and for being with us at the New School. It's been a total pleasure, Michael, and have a good holiday. You too, and many blessings. I hope our paths cross soon. I'm sure they will. All right. Bye-bye. Take care. You've been listening to a conversation from the New School at Commonweal. Please visit our website where you can subscribe to our podcast and find further information about our guests and programs. Our website is www.commonweal.org slash new hyphen school. Commonweal is spelled C-O-M-M-O-N-W-E-A-L. Or you can go to www.commonweal.org and click on the new school and get to our program that way. Thank you for joining us at the new school.